Two weeks before Celeste and I were going to get married, we came home from church in the evening, and we were met by our father, who was very excited, and he says, we're going to have to postpone the wedding. The wedding can't happen. It's two weeks away, and we're sitting there looking at what's going on. He says, your dress has been burned. So we work through the story, and the reality is that the woman who was making the bridesmaid's dress, now this gets complicated, all of the bridesmaid's dresses have been brought to my future mother-in-law's home, but because my father-in-law was painting his home, her dress was taken to the seamstress home to make sure it didn't get paint on. The seamstress family went off to church and left a pot on the stove without turning it off. Now the reality was that it was a fire, but it was mostly smoke. But those of you who sew and understand fabric realize that if you have high quality linen and lace, that acts like a magnet to smoke. Now, the woman just felt horrible. She got her insurance company involved on Monday. They took it around to the best cleaners in Atlanta, and they all said, you can't do anything with this. This dress... What? It's toast. It's toast, yes. So, somebody in the insurance world or something said, got an idea. They went to the seamstress and they said, if we buy you linen and lace, can you take this apart and make a new dress? And she said, yes. So Celeste ended up with better lace, better linen, but it would always be a copy Because Celeste and her grandmother had gone around Ybor City in Florida and looked at wedding gowns, and Celeste had drawn it up, and her grandmother, from Celeste's hand drawings, had created this dress. So, yes, she had a beautiful dress, but we know, and I, you know, this is, as as you go, you know, we're we're 49. Anyway, it's been a long time since that fire. The wedding happened. My wife looked beautiful. But in the back of our memories, we would always see that as a copy of an irreplaceable gift that her grandmother, who never learned to speak English, but could look at a drawing and create a dress that what she had was a copy. Now, I had grown up when I went to see my grandparents of seeing copies of sailing ships. Because my grandfather came from a family that in the 1840s or so in New York City started a fish company and had set up vessels all over the North Atlantic. And so you see in the 1840s, you see them with their masts, and then you begin to see them with paddle wheels, and then they had stern drive. You see the projection, because they would, somebody would bring a model of 
the ship they wanted to build the company. And so you had a model that became a reality. And that's part of what is in this story, is that you have an ark that is a copy after the pattern of the real thing in heaven. See, we know that because of all the scripture we can read, we can look at. We can realize this is the beginning of an important part of God's redemptive story with his people when he gives them the directions for the Ark of the Covenant. This box with poles. With these angels with their wings together and their faces down. This thing that would be the most holy place that the high priest could only go in once a year and that with blood that was not his own. But yet God said, I want you to have poles in it because you're going to take the tent down and that's what's going to lead you when I take you on your exodus journey. When I move you from one place to the other, you have to have it on the poles. Now we remember the, you know, when... Israel tried to use it like a good luck charm and said, hey, let's go get the ark so we can win a battle. And what happens? It ends up in the Philistines' camp. Their gods get tipped over. Their gods do this. And they say, we got to get rid of this. How do we do that? (coughs) So they start sacrificing and bringing it the wrong way because it was on a cart. You remember in the story how it started to slip and someone reached out and touched it and they were killed. You have to transport it on the poles. So it's a very almost invisible thing because the only time when you see it and everybody can see it is when God says, I want want you to move. Now, what we want to see today is that Christ is the real ark for the covenant community, not the copy. You can learn a lot of things from a copy. Knowing that it was captured, it was patterned after the real thing. That's part of what we read in our assurance of pardon. Now, one commentator reminds us that when we look at the ark, because of what we know about Christ, what we see are his his offices, what he did as mediator, redeemer, savior, prophet, priest, king. You see all of that in there. It was the most holy thing they would have. Think about that. They're building in the transport with, remember what it said in the text? Always leave the poles attached. Because it becomes that visible thing that goes out in front that everybody can see. Now, what it's hard for us to visualize, we can visualize the box, 
But that is where the center of the Shekinah glory, the smoke and the fire that led them would be. Whether it was under the tent in the tabernacle, or whether it was in front of this caravan, this parade of all the tribes, of God being there. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, reminds us, and this is, by now you understand for all the times I'm using Hebrews, both in references as well as in the liturgy, why we're going to look at Hebrews after we look at the seed. They serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since is it enacted to better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now, there's at least two things in that passage I want you to think about. One is to remember now the story of the ark that we're looking at. Moses was shown a pattern. He brings that down, and he tells them about it. And then we look at Christ and the discussion of the covenant. And what have we seen in our looking at the covenant in the book of Genesis? God keeps making it better. God keeps expanding it. He renews it. He adds to it. So by the time we get to Hebrews and Christ is fully shown so that he has a better one that has better promises. Isn't that a key word in covenant theology and understanding the covenant? You begin in Genesis 12 with promises to bless all the nations. 18 promises to bless the nations. And here, better promises. That we worship a God who makes promises to keep them, and he keeps them in Jesus Christ. Now, there's a very interesting verse in Jeremiah. Of course, Jeremiah is one of those transitional prophets between before people go into exile and after people are going into exile. People are going into exile. Listen to what he says about the Ark of the Covenant. This is in chapter 3, verse 16. He's talking about the future. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, covenant bells, does that ring covenant bells? Fruitful, multiply. In those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. Why? Because it's a copy. You can let a copy go out of your memory knowing that the real thing is there. Now, see, I don't know what kind of movies you've seen, but Raiders of the Lost Ark was a big movie in the United States. 
And what it turned the Ark of the Covenant into was a piece of a cult. It turned it into an evil power that, of course, the Nazis wanted to do something with and things like that. And so where does it end up? In a CIA warehouse. Still waiting for the follow-up film when somebody moves that or tips it over or something and it all starts again. Oh, wait a minute. They made that movie when they were testing nuclear bombs in the United States. It's, it's, the Ark has had an interesting film history. But in Scripture... If you go to Revelation 19, the last book, the last view of things, verse 19 says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within its temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. I mean, talk about a dramatic scene. You open up the temple in heaven, the real thing, where Christ went to do his ministry, both as a sacrifice, as an interceder, as someone who then is resurrected. He is mediator, redeemer, savior, prophet, priest, king. See, it's not only just opened, but you have atmosphere with this There were flashes of lightning, there were rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. See, what does all that weather do? It creates uncertainty. Those of us who have been through earthquakes understand the uncertainty that that can happen. Those of us who have been through destructive hailstorms know what that can be like. We have seen flashes of lightning. I have seen... You know, the elder in our church that I did my internship, he and his wife had a tree that was 100 feet from the house that was hit by lightning. You know what happens when trees are hit by lightning? They explode. They send these sharp spears out into the siding of the house. Fortunately, nothing hit the window. But he gives us this very dramatic image of where the Ark of the Covenant is within the temple. You see, in the Ark you have basically covenant revelation. You have the testimony. That's a new word. And does that mean that that's the tablets? Is it his will and testament? His adoption for us? It is his written revelation. And I think this is very important for us to remember. Is it the first written revelation that we have that the people of God were told to keep was written by the finger of God on stone on the top of the mountain? Think about that. He is the pattern for all of the Bible that he would write his words on stone and they would keep it and they would carry it around. One of the things that happens when you have the word testament chosen instead of tablets is that it is tied into your will and your heirs. Remember all the language about heirs in 
12, 15, 18, 22 in Genesis. That what God gave us was written there to remind us that we are connected to him through a legal document that he wrote himself. Now, one of the things about the Ark of the Covenant that certainly represents Jesus Christ, Christ who came as the Word made flesh, this is something that is identified as the meeting place. Remember how often I go back and I say, okay, the meeting place is part of the assurance that what is, was lost in the garden, what was lost there when they were pushed out because they didn't listen to the word of God, when they were pushed out, God continues to reach out and reach out, and now he gives them a publicly placed space where he says, I will meet you. And what happens in that place where I will meet you? He says, I will speak to you. Christ, who was sent by the Father to do the will of the Father, to reveal the Father, to speak for the Father. This ark was getting us ready for them. That there's a place where God's people meet with him and listen to him. Put this down here carefully. There are a lot of modern people who are looking for a word from the Lord. But they're not willing to listen. See, I think that's why he gave us a place where he says, my written word is going to be, this is the beginning of my written word. And you need to listen to my prophets. Because God would speak to Moses who then would speak to the people. Why? The people were terrified, rightly, of God's voice. So we don't want to hear it, because they knew that God would be too close. And they were afraid of the presence of God, the holy presence of God, but God was there in that most holy place. Not only will he meet with them, it's a place, he says, I will lead them. Think of all the places. I mean, you think of this, I mean... There's lots of dramatic scenes with the ark, but you think of the ark going into the Jordan and it drying up. The four men have that ark on their shoulders with those poles that are there holding it up, and the people go by into the promised land. Because God is going with them. You see, we have a God that goes with us wherever we go. And one of the things that I think Jeremiah was talking about, okay, that piece of furniture has to leave because God's spirit is going to go out into all the world. We're not going to duplicate. We're not going to make a franchise out of the ark, out of something physical. Because it's going to be by faith. Because what would happen? You'd have the raiders of the lost ark. The people would say, if we control that, then we control Christianity. No, it's gone. Think about that. God gives us something physical to look at and to learn from, and he says, it's gone because it's really in heaven. 
That there is this holy temple that we know that's where the real Ark of the Covenant is. That the promise, the copy was made from it. I will meet you, and I will lead you. Now, you know, we're very much modern people, in other words, we want to see the most important thing in this passage is, and I want to shy away from that. Because God tells us all about the box, gold, cherubs with wings and faces that look down. And he ends up with the mercy seat, the cover. Because that's what the mercy seat really is, is the cover. It's the cover that turns away the wrath of God. It's under the wings. And so many times in the Psalms and other places, you will see that we are under God's wings, we are under his protection. But yet, those cherubim and the way they were faced with their wings together and their heads down were humbling themselves because they didn't want to look into the very face of God who was coming to meet them. Reminds us of our need for humility. But yet, how did that priest that was selected once a year go in? And he went in on which day? The Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16, beginning of verse 14, says, And he shall take some blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his fingers on the front of the mercy seat on the east side, and the front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his fingers seven times. I will stop with a parenthesis and say, It is the sprinkling of the mercy seat. Why historically Presbyterians have sprinkled water. Because we follow what the Old Testament does to put the name of the Trinity on someone. Anyway, going on to verse 15. He shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil to do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkle it over the mercy seat and the front of the mercy seat. Thus shall he make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall do it for the tent of meeting which dwells in them in the midst of their uncleanliness. Do you see that he's got to cleanse the church with the blood, not just the ark? The whole thing has to be cleansed. Just like all of our lives are cleansed by Christ, by by his death on the cross. Do you believe that every sin that you have committed, every sin that you have touched or been a part of, that God's blood through Christ, that you are forgiven, you are cleansed? You see, that's where this is going to take us. God is showing us that The very tent needs to be cleansed by the blood. The very ark, the holy place has to be cleansed. That's not like the temple. What did we read earlier? Not every year, but one time. And when he went in, he went in for our sake, not for his sake. 
so that you and I can know that our sins are forgiven, that we really are the children of God, that God really wants to meet with us and communicate with us through his written word, that God wants to go with us as we go in life, that we're not alone. Even though the world may look at this ex-slave bunch of tribes, God says, you're my people. I've adopted you. I'm your father. Yesterday at the men's prayer meeting that I go to every month, I was in charge of the Bible study, and we were looking at Luke 6. And I thought about the relationship between Luke 6 and this passage. Luke 6 ends with the story, is your house on a rock or on the sand? See, if your house is on the rock, on God's revelation, I'm certain you know because you trust God's word that your sins are forgiven, that you've been cleansed, that you don't have to be anxious and lonely about them. You don't have to hide from people because of your sins, that they've been forgiven because of the blood of Christ. We don't wait for the Day of Atonement. We understand what the Day of Atonement is all about when people realized that the whole nation was guilty. The whole nation needed to be redeemed. So when Christ died on the cross, he died for all of his people for all time. That means us, you. That we can be forgiven. That he indeed will meet with us. And I think about that smoke And that fire that led them that was there over the mercy seat, that place of meeting. And I think about the spirit of adoption that we're given so we can cry out to the Father. That he gives us his spirit to go with us wherever we are, just like they had the spirit of God. They had the angel of the Lord. They had the very presence of God to take them on their journey and to be the center of their worship. We won't meet next Sunday because we'll be remembering the Great War, but the following week we'll have our last sermon in this series. But the two things I want you to walk away with in your memory to chew on this week are the fact that God does not want you to be lonely or anxious because he wants you to know, I'm going to meet with you. I'm going to be with you. He makes that covenant promise. And the second thing is that your sins are forgiven by the shed blood of Christ who went into the real temple to seal that forgiveness. And so in faith, hear the word of God that you're not alone, that he wants to meet with you. Hear the word of God that when he tells you that your sins are forgiven, because of what Christ did in the real temple, once for all. Not like the copy, which year after year after year you had to do it. High priest after high priest. One high priest, Jesus Christ. 
We have families and communities that are suffocated by guilt. Who feel that guilt is a quicksand that is swallowing their lives. Who need to know the good news of Jesus Christ that your sins can be forgiven. And you can know that for sure. I think about that wonderful phrase of Christ in Matthew When he gives the cup, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. That he gives us something physical to taste, to touch, so that we know that our sins are forgiven. That we don't have to let them be the identifier of who we are, but that Christ is our identifier. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would take the word of God and bring it into our lives, that you would particularly help us to know that we are forgiven because of the shed blood of Christ. That we realize, like the Israelites, everything around us needs to be cleansed, but only the blood of Christ can cleanse it once for all. And so, Father, as we end this service, as we share a meal... We pray that we can rejoice that you are among us, because your word tells us that. We pray these things, Jesus, in your most holy name.